Now, the Three Martini Lunch with Greg Corumbus and Jim Garrity. And my name is Greg Knapp. I'm in for Greg Corumbus. You can find out more about me, free gift, gregorybnapp.com, and a new podcast out. It's all in the show notes. And we've got Jim Garrity, as always, the senior political correspondent of National Review. He loves for you to check him out on Twitter, at Jim Garrity. That's also in the show notes. And today we're brought to you by NetSuite by Oracle. This is the Three Martini Lunch. We will start with the good. Tulsi Gabbard going off on Kamala Harris and on her record as a prosecutor. Some people were wondering if some of these things that used to be good as a prosecutor, being tough on crime and some of these other things, have turned into negatives for especially the progressives in their party. And let's give just a little bit of the audio and then we'll get into what we think of this. Here is Tulsi Gabbard and Kamala Harris. Now, Senator Harris says she's proud of her record as a prosecutor and that she'll be a prosecutor president, but I'm deeply concerned about this record. She put over 1,500 people in jail for marijuana violations and then laughed about it when she was asked if she ever smoked marijuana. Ooh. She blocked evidence. She blocked evidence that would have freed an innocent man from death row until the courts forced her to do so. She kept people in prison beyond their sentences to use them as cheap labor for the state of California. And she fought to keep cash you, bail system in place that impacts poor people in the worst kind of way. As the elected attorney general of California, I did the work of significantly reforming the criminal justice system of a state of 40 million people, which became a national model for the work that needs to be done. And I am proud of that work. And I am proud of making a decision to not just give fancy speeches or be in a legislative body and give speeches on the floor, but actually doing the work of being in the position to use the power that I had to reform a system that is badly in need of reform. That is why we created initiatives that were about reentering former offenders and getting them counseling. It is why, and because I know that criminal justice Thank system you, is Senator. so broken, that I am an advocate for what Thank we you, need Senator. to do to not your, your only decriminalize, but legalize marijuana in the United States. The bottom line is, Senator Harris, when you were in a position to make a difference and an impact in these people's lives, you did not. And worse yet, in the case of those who were on death row, innocent people, you actually blocked evidence from being revealed that would have freed them until you were forced to do so. There is no excuse for that. And the people who suffered under your reign as prosecutor, oh, you owe them an apology. Let's start with the beginning. Tulsi Gabbard just takes her down with a factual attack one by one. And Harris's response is not to really respond to those, but to kind of muddy the waters. What did you see there? I, mean, I think Tulsi Gabbard had a pretty good first debate. She really ate her Wheaties heading into this one. And, you know, people might say, why is this a good martini? Well, look right of center guy, you know, we don't have a lot of people who are necessarily rooting for in this debate, but it is good to see Kamala Harris getting uh, held accountable for the less flattering parts of her record as prosecutor. And honestly, I don't even think these are necessarily terribly controversial aspects of criminal justice reform. You know, the blocking of evidence that uh, for the guy on death row was a DNA test. He wanted one. Kamala Harris's office said, no, we don't want to give you one. Subsequent to Kamala Harris leaving office, he got it. And lo and behold, the guy was innocent. That's not a right or left issue. That's just bad. You know, left, right, or center. You don't want to see innocent people on death row. The marijuana claim, look, whether you love marijuana or you don't like marijuana, I think it's fair to say it's kind of hypocritical if you yourself have used marijuana and still have prosecuted other people for marijuana possession. Gabbard had the facts on her side. I went back and I checked. Every one of them checks out. And Harris had no defense 
And so it basically was, don't listen to all that kind of stuff. I'm a criminal justice, you know, reformer. And, you know, and then the best part, you know, you know smelling blood in the water, told, you know, the, old, the surfer Tulsi Gabbard went after her again. And I think that did real damage to Kamala Harris because Kamala Harris's whole central issue is I am the tough prosecutor who's on your side. All of a sudden, that, what's left? What's the appeal of Kamala Harris if, uh, in, in light of all this? That's a great point, Jim. And then she goes into, you know, I don't just give fancy speeches. And, and she's trying to focus on that she was a prosecutor. And, and then she says the favorite one here is when she talks about how are you going to respond under fire? I think you can judge people by when they are under fire. And Tulsi Gabbard was on the battlefield in Iraq. And that's what Kamala Harris is throwing at her. <laughs> what? Yeah. Look, they, you know, of all the candidates on that stage, Tulsi Gabbard is not the candidate you should be using the you haven't been under fire uh, line of criticism on. And I think that, look, as, as tough as Kamala Harris looked in that first debate against Biden, look, I don't know if you want to say she's got a glass jaw, but she looked flustered and unable to give a good response when she was under attack. And Jim, in your morning jolt, you put out that line where she said about being under fire. I didn't see anywhere else, and, and I haven't looked everywhere, but I didn't see anywhere else her getting any grief for saying that to Tulsi Gabbard, an Iraq war veteran. You know, if Trump had said that at a debate, it would have been the headline everywhere. And it's just another example of how the other Democrats in the media kind of cover for these other Democrats. That they, yeah, and look, I think it's safe to say Kamala Harris is the kind of candidate that a lot of not only just members of the media, but I think, you know, Democratic Party officials and, and kind of the punditocracy and all those kind of folks, I think they like her. You know, the, the background, the, the being a woman, being from California, the most populous state, you know, that, that she hits a pro- And that's fine. You're, you're, you're able to like who you like. But this means that, you know, just as when Beto O'Rourke sounded like a goofball in 2018, you know, uh, everybody kind of averted their eyes. Kamala Harris just said you haven't been under fire to the only war veteran up on that stage and nobody's talking about it. And a lot of people still were saying last night they thought Kamala Harris had won the debate, which struck me as really you know, astounding. For those of us who, who believe in accountability, regardless of party, uh, that exchange last night was just golden. Couldn't agree more. And that's the point is, especially in the news media, they're supposed to be equal in how they cover this stuff. And when you see that kind of bias, you, you should point it out. That is Martini number one. And as we said, today we are brought to you by NetSuite by Oracle. Now, if you don't know your numbers, you don't know your business. But the problem that growing businesses have that keeps them from knowing their numbers is their hodgepodge of business systems. They have one system for accounting, another for sales, another for inventory, and so on. And it all turns into a big inefficient mess, taking up way too much time and way too many resources. And that hurts the bottom line. Introducing NetSuite by Oracle, the business management software that handles every aspect of your business in an easy-to-use cloud platform, giving you the visibility and control that you need to grow. With NetSuite, you save time, money, and unneeded headaches by managing sales, finance, accounting, orders, human resources, all of it instantly, right from your desktop or phone. That's why NetSuite is the world's number one cloud business system. And right now, NetSuite is offering you valuable insights with a free guide, Seven Key Strategies to Grow Your Profits, at netsuite.com slash martini. That's netsuite.com slash martini to download your free guide, Seven Key Strategies to Grow Your Profits. 
One last time, it's netsuite.com slash martini. All right, now it's time for martini number two. It's the bad one where Joe Biden and Cory Booker went at it. And Biden went after Booker on how he handled crime in his city as mayor. By the way, Jim, this was part of the most tweeted moment of the debate last night. So here's a little bit of the audio. Number one, the bill he talks about is a bill that in my our administration we passed. We passed that bill that you added on to. That's the bill, in mm. fact, you passed. And the fact of the matter is, secondly, the, there was nothing done for the entire eight years he was mayor. There was nothing done to deal with the police department. Uh, Mr. Vice President, there's a saying in my community, you're dipping into the Kool-Aid and you don't even know the flavor. Uh, you need to... <laughs> and so there was a little bit more in detail there where Biden really did take him chapter and verse through a, a frisking policy that they took from New York that was controversial because it had a larger proportion of mm -hmm. young black males being frisked. There were a lot of investigations on whether that was lawful. Um, the Justice Department was coming after them, saying that they were being racist in the way they were doing it, all kinds of stuff. And Booker gets out of it with a Kool-Aid reference. What? Yeah, I, I suppose, uh, you know, you're dipping into the Kool-Aid is, is the Newark version of, um, you know, that dog won't hunt, as they used to say in Texas politics. But yeah, and look, you know, got a lot of applause. Everybody was folksy. Everybody's like, oh, you tell him, you know, uh, uh, Corey. But he never really addressed the three criticisms that Biden had laid out earlier. And I went back and checked this one last night. And this, too, was all accurate. Cory Booker did campaign on zero tolerance when he was mayor. He did enact a stop and frisk policy, and he did hire as the commissioner of police in uh, Newark, the guy who had been deputy commissioner uh, of AMIPD under Giuliani hired in 2000. Now, keeping in mind, uh, this, I don't think there's anything necessarily wrong with this deputy commissioner. The crime went down in Newark while he, uh, in Newark while he was commissioner. Time, crime went down when he was in New York at the NYPD. It was a little bit of a guilt by association there, but Booker didn't address any of this. And it was basically this very folksy way of saying, ha, you don't know what you're talking about, Mr. Vice President. That to me struck me as a very frustrating dodge. Biden did a version of what Gabbard had done in that other issue. And, uh, you know, but Cory Booker had exactly the right kind of folksy response to kind of diffuse it. And like you say, I don't think it was quick-witted at all. I think it was a memorized response that he was just waiting to use on whoever attacked him. If it went a little bit deep into the weeds, that's what he was going to use as his get out of jail free card. And unfortunately, there are a lot of people that love that stuff more than they do the actual facts and the truth. Yeah. And I know it's the beginning in my community. So it was kind of this sense yeah. of, you know, hey, I'm part of this community and you're not going to understand this, Mr. Vice President. Greg, I suppose the equivalent for me would be to say, you know, coming from the uh, uh, suburban New Jersey mall rat, mall rat comic book and Star Wars geek uh, community. You know, pal, you think you're Boba Fett. You're not even a Jar Jar Binks. Oh, man, that hurts. <laughs> I understand that. That's probably bad, too. <laughs> oh, I wanted to get to what you were just saying about the facts, because I think Joe Biden and Bill Clinton and everybody who signed on to the the crime bills a couple decades ago are getting a bad rap because when you talk about the whole crack cocaine and powder cocaine and, and, and the rules, the, the laws that were put into place, it was in the black communities that were getting decimated by crack cocaine where black leaders and black pastors were begging Congress to increase the penalties for crack dealers 
and crack users. And when they put those laws in and they it, they did have crime go down. Crime's been going down every year since the 90s until very recently. Violent crime had been going down and people can get upset about more people in prison. But the facts are that violent crime had been going down. Uh, yeah. We can, you know what I mean? Uh, no, I if this is, if not historical revisionism, then let's say historical airbrushing, because in the, you know, ahead from the 70s, particularly in the 1980s and well into the 90s, people were really concerned about violent crime. Um, and that all of these tough on crime measures, first of all, they're all phenomenally popular across the board. There's a reason Democrats uh, were embracing what had traditionally been considered a Republican approach of get tough on crime. Um, the, the voters supported it. Yeah, there are some costs to that policy, right? You do take somebody who's, you know, in their teenage years, maybe they joined a gang, they're in a bad community, you put them in jail, and you take away other avenues from them, right? You've given them a conviction, and now it's going to make it harder for them to get a job later on in life. There's very strong arguments, I think, to be made for things like anti-recidivism programs and prisons and things like that. But everyone seems to act like these tough-on-crime policies came out of nowhere, and they didn't. You know, people used to not be able to go into Central Park at night, right? You know, I grew up, uh, as I mentioned, in New Jersey. So I remember when Bernie Getz was shooting people on the subway, and there was this attitude that he was some sort of vigilante hero, right? I mean, there was this, you know, real deep-rooted fear of crime. Now, did that lead to some policies that probably had some unforeseen consequences? Sure. But, you know, Cory Booker really wants to make it sound like uh, Joe Biden's tough on crime career was this, you know, irrational, out of nowhere, completely unjustified approach to the issue. And I don't think that holds up in the light of, you know, actual history. Yeah. And that it was racist. That's the big mm. thing. Uh, no doubt. Oh, you know, beyond policies, your record, I just wanted to ask your opinion on this, Jim. I know some people say being presidential doesn't matter anymore in the era of Trump, but I disagree. I think you need to look presidential. I don't think Cory Booker looked presidential to me last night. I mean, he looks too rehearsed. He he looks like that door-to-door salesman, you know, that would start with his script. And if you interrupted him, he had to start over, you know, because mm. it was memorized and his eyes get too big and he looks a little panicked. That's what he reminds me of. Yeah, there's a look. It's very interesting when I did a series kind of profiling a bunch of the Democratic uh, candidates. And one of the things I went back in 2000, then Newark Mayor Cory Booker spoke at the Manhattan Institute. It's a uh, conservative think tank up in New York City, particularly focusing on urban policy. And he gave a speech promoting vouchers and school choice and criticizing establishment Democratic political machines in big cities. Wow. Thrilled them, right? There, there was a time when Cory Booker was going to be the uh, the reformer of, of some of the toughest inner cities in America. And there was a whole lot the conservatives uh, saw in that and saw, you know, even though he was a Democrat. You don't hear much of that from Cory Booker anymore. And I think that that total transformation, the degree to which he adapted from, let's say, the Obama era of politics to the Trump era of politics, does indicate that there's a certain amount of calculation uh, behind uh, all of his moves and his rhetoric and his tone and, and all of that. Um, the other thing which about Booker drove me crazy last night is he kept saying, why are we fighting each other as Democrats? Because this is just what the Republicans want to see. Senator, you're in a Democratic presidential debate. <laughs> right? You're going to get some debating. And in fact, like this is the thing. That you, you see this in a bunch of these. Oh, why do they have to argue with each other? Look, there is, if, 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 uh, if I'm a primary voter and you're my first choice, you know what you get? My vote. If you're my second choice, you get nothing. Glenberry, Glenn Ross, Alec Baldwin. <laughs> In second place, you at least you got a set of steak knives, right? So you have to be convince voters to make them your first choice. 
that's a, you know, that's a high bar to make. And the only way you do that is by drawing contrast. Everybody on this stage is good, but I am the best because of X, right? And, you know, and that, that seems to bother Cory Booker, but that's at the very nature of what these primary debates are for. So anyway. Yeah, I guess in the immortal words of the philosopher Ricky Bobby in Talladega Nights, it's true in this case. Yay, yeah, first or last. Absolutely correct. That, that you're either you're either the choice of a potential voter or you're not. I suppose if you know their first choice drops out and you're the second choice, they can drift over to you. But by and large, your job is not to say, "Hey, everybody, I'm the second best person up on this stage." <laughs> yep. Unless you're going for the VP nom. Yeah. Okay. Time for the crazy martini. We're going to Kirsten Gillibrand. She goes after Joe Biden. And Jim, you were a little you were a little confused about why she chose a 1981 op-ed. Let's hear the audio. When the Senate was debating uh, middle class affordability for childcare, he wrote an op-ed. He voted against it, the only vote. But what he, he wrote an op-ed was that he believed that uh, women working outside the home would quote create the deterioration of family. So under Vice President Biden's analysis, am I serving in Congress? resulting in the deterioration of the family because I had access to quality, affordable daycare. That was a long time ago, and here's what it was about. It would have given people making today $100,000 a year a tax break for child care. I did not want that. I wanted the child care to go to people making less than $100,000, and that's what it was about. As a single father who, in fact, raised three children for five years by myself, I have some idea what it cost. I support making sure that every single solitary person needing child care get an $8,000 tax credit now. So there you go. Kirsten Gillibrand going after Biden as a misogynist, sexist pig. Uh, of course, when he was Obama's right hand man, he could do no wrong. This yeah. is what politics are, right? Yeah. You know, um, just about, you know, Greg, if you and I had to sit around and come up with critique reasons to not like and to not vote and not support Joe Biden, we could come up with a lot, right? He's old, uh, runaway mouth, barely pays attention to what he says, um, you know, gaffes, uh, not always the most honest, uh, you know, kind of this, you know, uh, look, this is a guy who's run for president twice before and, you know, didn't, you know, didn't crack 1% in either one of them, right? You know, kind of a blowhard, you know. Out of all the topics you could go after Joe Biden on, the idea that he opposes women working outside of the home, and your evidence for this is this 1981 op-ed? I mean, so I went back and I checked and I read it. And by the way, Biden's assessment is correct and that most of that op-ed is basically complaining um, that the tax credit goes to people who have incomes in excess of $100,000. By the way, if you're wondering, $100,000 back in 1981 is about $282,000 today. You know, if you're making $282,000 in a household, you're not poor. Right? Right. You know, maybe you live in a high cost of living area, but Biden's objection was, you know what, the government should not be giving you a tax break uh, for, for paying for, day, for daycare or something like that. This is not a crazy point of view. We can argue about what that tax limit ought to be. You know, his point was that, hey, this is a giveaway to families that are already doing pretty darn well. Um, Gillibrand, the other fairly glaring pieces of evidence that would contradict this claim from Gillibrand that Biden secretly opposes women working in the workplace are his first wife and then, of course, Jill Biden. <laughs> Jill Biden worked in the, you know, as a teacher pretty much the entirety of all the years they were raising their children, except for two years when she took off when she had her own child. So all in all, like, you know, like this isn't even a plausible line of argument. 
Um, and then, of course, you know, Biden nukes her by citing a, a trip they had both taken to Syracuse University earlier in the year. And she says, you talked about how great I was at defending women's rights. The only thing that's changed since then, I guess, is that you're running for president. And it was just as if a nuke had gone off on that stage. Kirsten Gillibrand has been really unimpressive as a candidate so far. I thought she was kind of old. You know, those glorious, these profiles in Vogue magazine way back when were kind of seeing what they wanted to see. Um, she's another one who's had a, a crash into the brick wall of reality. And, um, you know, I think it's, we can kind of close the book on Kirsten Gillibrand pretty soon. Yeah, if I was going to go after Joe Biden on women, I'd go after him with all those photos and videos of him being all handsy with people. Right? That's just yeah, creepy, man. That just creeps me out when I watch that. Yeah, that would be he, much in, better. In that last paragraph of the op-ed, he says that, you know, the proliferation of daycare centers and uh, uh, nursing homes across the country is a reflection of our lack of responsibility to the people who matter to us most. Now, this is 1981. Now, that comes across as jerky, right? That's one where he really comes across as an insensitive clod because my suspicion is, uh, you know, most people who had to put their parent or their grandparent into a home, that's probably one of the toughest things they've ever had to do. We know the people who go into nursing homes generally don't come out uh, and go off and live on their own again, right? This is, this is a painful moment where you're seeing your loved one you know, maybe Alzheimer's is starting to kick in. Maybe they've broken their hip a couple times. You know, for whatever reason, you're not comfortable with them living on their own. And for Biden to write that this is, you know, like if you're going to attack him for anything in that op-ed, go after him on that one, I'd argue. But uh, that's, uh, you know, I mean, leave it to Gillibrand to ignore that and to try to hammer him as some, you know, mad men, you know, women should stay home and barefoot and pregnant line instead of uh, instead of the actual useful criticism that she has there. Yeah, she's going to be one of the ones to drop away here before the next debate, pretty sure. Uh, that is martini number three. Oh, we have a little bonus here, Jim, just to throw out some quick tips for people. Quick facts, excuse me. Uh, we, Tulsi Gabbard, most searched candidate on Google. And we look at who spoke the most. We had Biden had the most time, then Harris and Booker. Yang was the candidate who spoke the least. And I actually, I actually kind of like listening to him uh, as a as a business person, just to see what a Democrat business person would say. Bill De Blasio and Castro were in the bottom three, and then how many Trump mentions? Michael Bennett mentioned Trump the most at ten. Cory Booker and Kirsten Gillibrand tied at ten. Then Joe Biden, Bill De Blasio, eight and seven. The person who mentioned the least, Jay Inslee, but I think that's because he barely spoke. Yeah. So. <laughs> uh, you know. You know, the let's mention Trump because that's what you know Democratic activists are most mad about. Um, I, I think after I think there's a law of diminishing returns. Uh, <laughs> after the first dozen mentions, absolutely. <laughs> yes, and, and, and and here's the thing, you know, once there's nobody on that stage who's going to disagree with you when you say Trump is this, that, or the other. How does that differentiate you and get people to pay attention to you? I think that exactly. Yeah. You know, the you name of the that. game is differentiation. But uh, anyway. All right, yeah. there we go. Yeah. Another, another debate in the books. And not too soon, thank goodness. It's very hard to watch all three hours of that. So I want you to thank Jim for doing that for us and writing about it. Thank you, Jim. Jumping on that grenade. <laughs> all right, that is the Three Martini Lunch. My name is Greg Knapp, in for Greg Columbus. Jim Garrity, Senior Political Correspondent in National Review. Links to everything we do in the show notes. Brought to you today by NetSuite by Oracle. We'll see you again next time.